All right. So the name of the podcast is Application to Admission. I want it to be HBC versus PWIs, but you know, you think that's a little bit too too aggressive. And I, you know, I don't want to be aggressive. I want to make sure that I I treat your your your, your brother, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. right. You know, I don't come off too too militant. Even though Martin was a real militant man, he has some he has some really positive stances on a lot of things that people you know, have diluted his message through this holiday and all that, but that's a whole nother uh, episode. Once again, it's on the Application to Admissions uh, podcast. I am your, the co-host, I'm not the better looking co-host, but I am just the co-host of the application you, you, you wanted to, you wanted to say you were the host go ahead man <laughs> Freudian slip man you know it's all good it's all good i am shereen herndon brown my co-host my equal partner is timothy l fields and as always we are here to give you great information about the college application process because that's just what we do right that and tim that that's ultimately why we started the application admission podcast is to share information about college admissions yes Absolutely. Absolutely. We wanted to provide information from when you begin just thinking about the process, no matter how early that can be, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, all the way up until you hit the button that says, I want to attend this school. And then even we will help you as far as next steps as you prepare to go to that college. But everything from start to finish, all things college admission, that's why we're here. Tim, my man, we are on a roll right now. Again, I love doing these podcasts with you. We get to chop it up share information but again we would be remiss if we didn't tell the people how we've been traveling and sharing our book the black family's guide to college admission a conversation about parenting education and race we've been going across the country since we last jumped on right we california arkansas dallas new york like you know look at you racking up frequent flyer miles with delta sharing the message anything you want to talk about in your of your of our recent journeys I mean, just it was been exciting to, you know, travel around uh, the country, sharing information about the book, about college admission. Uh, You know, we were in Baltimore. You know, you came down to Atlanta, obviously, L.A., New York. Uh, We got to go to Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, got to go home to Dallas. So we've been moving around. So February was a busy, busy month for us. But black history, black history. Black History Month. And if you did not check out our Instagram page, Understanding the Choices, um, we highlighted Black history makers now. Uh, So, you know, of course, we want to honor uh, Martin Luther King Jr. We want to honor W.E. Du Bois. We want to honor Rosa Parks, Frederick Douglass, all those names. But there are Wes Moore. Wes Moore getting sworn in as governor. Salute to to Maryland for electing uh, uh, Governor Wes Moore. Yeah. So, you know, definitely go check that out. Uh, but, you know, March, April, May, the summer, we got a lot of uh, exciting activities planned. So uh, we just appreciate everybody's support. But we are still going to be here on application to admission to provide your day to day information as far as what you need to be doing uh, to be se- successful in this process. And to say to be successful is a great word, because, again, one of our missions is to redefine success. And, Tim, I want to say thank you for carving out time to travel, to to talk to me on the podcast. You know, I'm going to give you your flowers a little bit, because right now you are in the midst of application committee. You are still the senior associate dean of admission at Emory University. So you do have a nine to five in which you are knee deep in uh, first, you were reading applications, um, but now you're in committee. What is committee? What is admissions committee? What you've been up to? 
Yeah, you know, we always want to preference, you know, different schools go about the process in different ways. Uh, but most of the selective schools in the country um, have a period in which we call committee. And that is where we have gone through. We reviewed all the applications, made decisions on them. Um, and then we have to go back through and we have to really kind of begin to create the class. Uh, so, you know, we are every day in a committee of uh, five, six, seven, looking at different, uh, you know, aspects of the applications. Uh, looking at, you know, who, you know, within the class are going to have those characteristics that we are looking for. Uh, we're looking at senior grades uh, to see if maybe a student was admitted by first semester all A's, but then maybe those first, uh, you know, grades second semester aren't as tough. You know, we're looking at those to make sure students are keeping up, uh, you know, that high standard that, you know, we want students to be admitted at. Uh, you know, we also are looking at, you know, special populations. So obviously, you know, we want, you know, have students interested in a lot of different academic areas. So, yes, we're going to see the high flyers in the STEM area, but we also want to see the people in the humanities. We want people to see the people in the fine arts, the social sciences, so we can have balanced perspectives. So, you know, we spend uh, the most part of uh, March going through this process, looking at each application. We even go back and students who may have been denied or waitlist say, we're going to look at this student one more time to maybe there's some new information that we could possibly pull that student into the class. So um, it's beyond just reading applications and making a decision. That's not when the process starts. The process really starts when we get into committee and begin to crafting the class, making sure we have the diversity and the multiple voices that we want to have in uh, the community, depending upon the college or university. I mean, again, I know, I know you've been busy, and again, within strategic admissions advice on the application side, I've been primarily following up a lot of my seniors, my class of 2023s, making sure that their application is complete, um, you know, make sure they're sending their their new grades or any additional information uploading to their, pro, uh, their portals, right? So once a senior applies to college, they then get an application portal to track their application. And some schools allows students to add additional information if anything has changed since they last applied. So I've been doing that with a lot of my seniors. Obviously, many of them have been admitted to school via early action, early decision. So January was a little tricky with the follow-up. February um, has been a little uh, not as heavy. So I've been supporting you and giving you your time. And now I'm actually gearing up to work with the class of 2024 and 2025, quite frankly. Um, yeah, it's application season. And and uh, the common application just recently released that their essay prompts will not change from last year. So 2023, 2024 essay prompts will be the same as 2022, 2023. So actually several of my clients, we've actually been reviewing those in preparation to start brainstorming and writing, you know, early, you know, late spring, early summer. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a great time in college admissions. We had like a little bit of a lull, at least for me. Um, but now it's, it's right back at it. You know, our travel suggests that we are on task. Parents, please make sure that you are connecting with your school counselors. Uh, your, your school has procedures and policies regarding the college admissions process, whether they use something called SCORE or Maya Learning or Naviance. You want to be fully abreast of how your school um, does their college counseling program. So, you know, it, it, it's a great time. Seniors, or excuse me, juniors, you're getting ready to visit some colleges if you haven't already for spring break. So again, this is, our season is ramping up. And yes, the summer is going to be oh so exciting. Uh, we can't even dangle that in front of you yet, but we're going to be everywhere trying to help as many people as possible as our book is touching many, many people. So, Tim, and, and, and Shereen, just, I mean, you know, similar how you're, uh, you know, kind of, 
you know, building up to help, you know, you know, uh, juniors uh, begin this process. Uh, we're also doing the same thing. So as I'm wrapping up uh, the class uh, for, you know, Emory, uh, for this upcoming uh, cycle, we're also preparing uh, to do a lot of travel. So, you know, I'll be at a lot of college fairs. I'll yes. be at lots of, you know, junior programs, uh, you know, already begin, you know, talking about, you know, what is some of the summer programming we're going to do. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the the calendar has turned and we're getting ready uh, for the next class. So it's happening on both sides of the desk. And again, I think, you know, one of the great things about this podcast and about working with you, Tim, is that we're able to really connect with other professionals in the education space, in the college admission space. And this week, we had a really great guest. Again, I've known Francisco Tenzin for over 20 years, but he's the president, the CEO of A Better Chance. And for 60 years, A Better Chance has placed high-performing students of color into the nation's leading uh, uh, independent schools, right? They've almost like been a pipeline for going to great independent schools and going to, to great colleges and universities with all the support, all the mentorship programs, you know, partnering with the right people to help the kids get to the right step. So I'm really excited about our conversation today. Again, I can't be more proud of Francisco, fellow Wesleyan alum, who's, uh, again, I knew risen, that was risen. coming. I, yes, yes, I I'm going to drop it. I had to drop it. I had to drop it. Okay. Yeah, because you drop all your HBCU Morehouse stuff. I'm saluting Wesley. I ain't going to say the other thing you're afraid I'm going to say, but Francisco is, is, has, was a great guest on our podcast. Um, he shared a lot of information, about not just about ABC, but how, you know, some of the, the, the stuff that we started our book with, right? The whole Black at IG movement affected ABC. And he was just, you know, two, three months into the job in 2020. So Francisco, we're going to give you the, the red carpet because you gave us your time. We really are appreciative of, of everything that you shared. And uh, this was Tim's first chance meeting you. Obviously, I've known you for a long time, but a better chance, Francisco Tenzin, doing big things. So please listen up, enjoy, learn, and continue to check us out. So, Tim, any final words before we pass the mic to Francisco? None at all. Enjoy. Okay. We are application to admission. We will see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Welcome back to the Application to Admission podcast. And again, we appreciate you guys for being here. Tim and I are always, always trying to give you great information about the college admissions process and hearing from educators in a variety of spaces that can ultimately help you, our listener, to think about college and, and college admission in, in a different light. So we're pumped today to have a very, very special guest. Um, I'm going to give us a little intro about him, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we get into the meat of it. Um, Francisco Tenzin, uh, if, I, if I pronounce your last name right, please tell, say it right for the people, is the sure. um, CEO, president of A Better Chance. And again, if you don't know what A Better Chance is, please Google it because you should, after all the great work that they've done, really making, giving kids in the independent school, giving, excuse me, underrepresented students an opportunity in the independent school space. Francisco, I will let you tell everybody a little bit about ABC and a little bit about you. But again, we are so appreciative of your time my fellow Wesleyan Cardinal. Um, I'm a little bit older, but again, uh, I'm a little older, a lot more gray, but the bottom line is that we're appreciative of your time and we want to really get into it sooner rather than later. So welcome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Shireen. It's so good to be here with you and Tim. Uh, again, Francisco Tizen, uh, President and CEO of A Better Chance. And actually this year, we're marking 60 years of A Better 60. Chance. So we've been doing this for six decades. And you know, I think I'm just so proud of the rich history and legacy, and it's really just an honor for me to be at the organization, you know, being founded 
uh, in parallel with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. So just steep with that history and that legacy about promoting access and opportunity uh, for underrepresented communities. And, you know, Better Chance has been a driving force in this work for 60 years, looking to increase access and opportunity for youth of color by helping underserved and talented students really access transformational mm. educational experiences that propel them to college and careers. And I have a better chance story. You know, my dad's an immigrant from Peru, came to the US when he was about 11, 12 years old with his family. Uh, my mom is a black woman from a rural black community in North Carolina. And they didn't have the benefit of high quality educational experiences. That was not uh, what they found and encountered when they were growing up. And yet they had this unshakable belief in the power of education to change the trajectory of my life as their son. And it was through an organization that was inspired by A Better Chance, Oliver Scholars, that was working locally in New York, that helped me gain access and entree to a transformative educational experience uh, at an independent school, the Packer Collegiate Institute in Brooklyn. And I oftentimes say, you know, I didn't have a passport until well into adulthood, but that educational experience was a passport to so many different things. Uh, there was a way in which it helped me to change my perception of what was possible and really propelled me on to college, a career in public service over the past two decades plus, uh, and now a fabulous opportunity at a better chance to give back what was given to me all those years ago. That's great. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, uh, you know, thanks, you know, for being here. We're definitely excited to have this conversation, especially regarding all the great work you're doing with not only a better chance and obviously come, come, it's going to come out some other great things that you're doing. But can you just talk about kind of that, you know, what happened from, you know, you were part of better chance, you went to college and then obviously started your professional career. But, you know, what led you back? You know, obviously, there are probably a lot of great opportunities that you've had. Um, in, you know, your time and your professional work. But, you know, what was it that led you back to a better chance? Yeah, I think for me, and it's throughout my journey as a young person, thinking about all the students and young people who were my classmates, who lived in my community, who did not have the benefit of the opportunities that I did. And, you know, just to be plain, I happen to take standardized tests very well. And that was the lever that led a guidance counselor to nominate me for all of the scholars. And then that's how I gained access. But I knew in that classroom, 50-odd uh, students in junior high, 50-odd students in elementary school who were just as smart, if not smarter than me, just as talented, if not more talented, but they weren't afforded those opportunities in the same way. And so you know, sometimes we kind of talk about a better chance and we think about the aspect of let's move beyond chance because it kind of implies just kind of this fortuitous circumstance. Mm -hmm. And really, it is something that we should ensure is available to all young people and equitable access. And so I think for me, those experiences stayed with me throughout. You know, I thought about all the young folks um, who were my classmates, who were in my family, who didn't have the benefit of the experiences I had. And so when I graduated from college after, you know, great educational experiences, internships uh, in corporate America that helped me to put a little money in my pocket, uh, helped me sort of navigate school. 
uh, I, I saw it as an opportunity to give back. And I said, you know, I really want to dedicate my work and my life to opening doors of opportunity. And that's, you know, manifesting and working at educational organizations, at colleges and universities with a focus on helping underrepresented groups gain access to those educational experiences. It's led me down the path of workforce development organizations, working with opportunity youth. And I think helping others understand that there's no one singular path to livelihoods and success and that there are multiple ways of really approaching it. And so, you know, I've been really blessed and honored to have those experiences. And then when I was approached about a better chance, uh, it just spoke to me uh, and it just felt like this was a calling and it was an opportunity in some respects to go home uh, and to go home to advance the work and to write a new chapter in the venerable legacy of this organization. Yeah. And if you don't mind, you know, just for those who maybe not be as familiar with the better chance, could you just, you know, kind of, you know, describe the scope of it? You know, you know, how big is the organization? You know, what's the regional, the national reach of the organization? You know, and how people, you know, really kind of get in involved with the organization? Yeah, happy to. So, you know, our model is, uh, I'll keep it simple. You know, first and foremost, we identify talented and promising students uh, in the fourth to ninth grade with the help of partnering community-based organizations, schools, and frankly, a lot of it's word of mouth from families and folks in the community who've had the benefit of the experience and who pay it forward to others. And then once folks apply from that applicant pool, we'll select a cohort that we work with over 14 months to prepare for application to independent school. Uh, and then next, we place students within our member school network, help them prepare, help to advocate for them. And our member school network is currently comprised of over 200 leading schools around the country. And each year, we're able to leverage something on the order of about $12 million in tuition assistance for our new scholars from our member school partners to make that access possible. And then we each year provide ongoing support to the nearly 2,000 scholars that we've placed and provide them with ongoing summer enrichment activities, workshops, and more as they explore post-secondary education opportunities and careers. Now we're working, you know, students are coming from upwards of 20 plus markets around the country. Uh, we go deep and have, you know, really extensive relationships, I would say in critical markets on both coasts, you know, New York, New England, you know, certainly Boston is kind of our, our legacy home, uh, DC, um, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and LA, I would say are the core markets where the majority of our schools and our partners are, uh, but truly a national effort. And at this point, we now have 18,000 plus alumni who have come through this program over the 60 years. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm learning by listening to you because again, I've heard of a better chance. Um, obviously, you know, Oprah got involved, I want to say in the mid 90s and gave it a shine a big light on it. But as an independent school alum myself, I went to Brooklyn Friends, which is right up the street from Packer, literally walking distance. Some of my best friends went to Packer for nine years from grades one through nine. So I wasn't involved in any of the enrichment programs like the Oliver Scholars or, or Prep for Prep or A Better Chance. But some of my best friends from Brooklyn Friends, Donald Ruff was recently honored. Um, he and I went to Brooklyn Friends together. Marisol Castro is still one of my best friends. You know, and I go, the list goes on and on, Jacques Pierre, Sharif Williams. But bottom line is I feel like Oliver Scholars was such a, a a noted organization late 80s early 90s then prep for prep and teak and you know abc's kind of always been the big boy on the block have you ever th thought about partnering you know 
with those other organizations to create and just say a, a united coalition. Because I've, I've always wondered that if, if the goal is to help kids get to independent schools, to help them in the trajectory of their education, get, go to a good college, I think they're all college preparatory. I understand their missions may be different, but if you're all doing the same thing, why not work together? And, and, and please, you know, I, I want to know. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's an interesting time. So I started at a better chance in February of 2020. Uh, so right before the pandemic mm. uh, really came into sharp focus. And I think we're looking at so many demographic changes and just changes in leadership uh, when we think about uh, public driven organizations. And I think um, one of the things that's interesting is that I was a new uh, CEO. Uh, Oliver Scholars had had a recent leadership transition. Prep for Prep a year yeah. later had a new uh, head of the organization. You know, I think similarly Teak as well. So what was interesting is that we're in this uh, interesting, uh, unique moment, unprecedented in terms of the pandemic. And I think while the organization always, I think, had um, communication channels open, I think mm -hmm. it yielded a new opportunity for us to come together, one, as new leaders, two, within an unprecedented time, mm -hmm. three, with an eye towards thinking about how do we best support uh, the students that we serve, who we see holistically as part uh, of our respective community, although we're working with, you know, the folks who are our particular scholars. And so we've started to meet on a regular basis. You know, we meet quarterly, we get together, you know, sometimes it's information sharing, sometimes it's talking about best practices, sometimes it's just saying, hey, did you hear this? This is what we're seeing. Are you having a similar experience? And I think that this is probably setting the table for just greater interaction and greater collaboration. You know, I think in the future, you know, when I muse about what's possible, it's like, hey, maybe we do joint programming together. Maybe there are ways in which we identify efficiencies, you know, because at the end of the day, when we think about all the students we have the honor and privilege to serve, we know there are so many more students who are needing those opportunities. And we all know that, you know, as nonprofit organizations, sometimes resources are stretched uh, pretty far and thin, and there are likely a number of advantages towards working together and collaboration. But I think it starts with communication. And I think we've done a really good job of just uh, staying in touch with one another and finding opportunities and ways to impact each other's work. Yeah, I mean, again, ca calling is the word you used earlier. And again, Tim and I definitely have approached this book from a purposeful project standpoint of feeling like here we are have been gifted these great opportunities in education. Um, and, you know, personally and professionally, and how dare we not share uh, what we know and what we can do with others. You talk about the pandemic again, and you came in literally a month before it started. Um, and then June of 2020 hits. And, you know, I don't, I think I shared this in this with you when we uh, met earlier this year. And, and thank you again for having us on your platform and speaking with your, your ABC parents. But our book is really an outgrowth of the pandemic and what happened within that where we saw the Black at IG movement. And for those of you who aren't familiar, there were students from around the country, predominantly independent schools, Black students, which led to a variety of students of color um, highlighting the micro and macro aggressions that they felt were, was going and, on. And racism. Them. And just, just blatant racism. Blatant, blatant racism. All right, sure. all right, let's put it all on the table. Sure, sure. And, you know, we, I called Tim, was like, this, there's a common thread of college counseling that I'm seeing amongst these Black at IG posts. And it was right then and there that we said we should write a book to address college counseling specifically for Black families, hence the Black Families Guide to College Admission. But how did your independent schools family respond to the Black at IG movement? Again, here you are 
three months into the job, right? This is June, July, you know, three, four months in. And I, I'm assuming this took you like a tidal wave. What was the, the, the ABC response and how did you engage with parents and with schools? Yeah, so, you know, I, I will say it probably would not surprise you and Tim. There wasn't a great deal of shock. Mm. I think there was disappointment among our families, frustration, at times anger, but not shock. I, I think given the systemic equities that families of color encounter in other aspects of our lives, this wasn't new. And at the same time, I think for families, I think it was powerful to see these stories amassed and visible and to give cho give voice to the challenges that were not singular or isolated, but were really taking place over periods of time. And, you know, again, I, I was one of those young people, uh, you know, who had those experiences. Some of the stories I read certainly mirrored my own experiences as a black and brown kid at, at my school uh, and a fellow classmates. And, you know, I think right now, as we think about this 25 years later, I think for me personally, it's kind of looking at it from the perspective of a new generation of students who were experiencing some of the same challenges. And I think it just underscored how much work uh, and progress remains really to be done and that we have to make. So, you know, because these are systemic challenges, I take I tend to take the long view. Uh, and it's really a privilege to work with my dynamic management team and a deeply and highly engaged and supportive board of directors to think about longer term strategies, solutions and policy changes. And I should note, 40% uh, of our board are alums of a better mm. chance. And I think that is really important because their perspective and experience is represented at the table when we're thinking about the go forward. And so, you know, again, when I started uh, back in 2020, you know, one of the most critical things the team and I did during the early days, which coincided with the Black App movement, was to say we are committed to moving from transactions to deeper relationships with the schools we partner with. Well said. And by that, I mean that we're working to move beyond simply interacting during recruitment season and talking about admissions and looking to better understand our school partners' culture, their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging, and to better understand if our respective missions and visions for the world are aligned and supported the families we serve. And to do that more effectively, you know, we contracted the number of schools we work with. We went from working with over 300 schools to literally over 200. Mm. And we said, let's prioritize quality of relationship versus quantity. And the deeper relationships, you know, they've been illuminating, you know, schools like Westminster and Atlanta, you know, seeing their work, having a more public purpose, seeing their campus as a place where the community can come together and convene and take part in some of what the school has to offer is so powerful. And they and other schools in the Atlanta area have been really generous in hosting and helping us build community with our scholars and a larger community in the metro region in Atlanta. You know, schools like, I just came back from visiting uh, Boston University Academy. Uh, they hosted something, brought together applicant families, scholar families, and alums for a community event. And in the process of that, they also shared some of the great work they're doing within the local community. They're partnering with community-based organizations and hosting financial aid workshops for students at those organizations. And it's not because all those students are looking to or intending to apply to Boston University Academy, but because they recognize they had unique knowledge that they thought could be helpful, not only to the applicant families, but to the broader community who might be pursuing options at other schools. And then better yet, they're continuing that relationship with those community-based organizations and helping the participants that they serve navigate the, the college financial aid process, which is incredible. 
or, you know, on the West Coast, thinking about uh, Black Pine School out in the Bay, you know, scholar families talk to us about the dynamic parent programming they have and the parent support that they re receive from families at the school that make them feel like a part of the community in deep and meaningful ways. So I think all of those things where I see our unique role is how do we start to tell more of those stories? How do I elevate those best practices to help to shape and wield influence? And at the same time, work with our families so that they can advocate for their children and for themselves to get the support and the resources that they need. That they need. So we've recently launched a new parent resource groups that's led by uh, scholar and alumni parents and families. So they're sharing lessons learned and helping to share with one another uh, best practices. I mean, yeah, that's good, good. Yeah, that, that's, that's excellent. Um, you know, excited about all the great work y'all are doing and building these relationships. But we have a lot of, you know, parents, uh, you know, some have children that are very young, uh, just starting the process. Some, you know, are, you know, currently, you know, finishing it up, you know, have, you know, high school seniors and, you know, they're anxiously awaiting um, decision deadlines. But as you begin to work with these families uh, for, I, I believe you said, a 14 month period, you know, what are kind of the guiding principles? What are, what are the important things that, you know, you would say that families regardless of the institution, the school type they want to attend should know as they begin the, this college process, as they begin to thinking about, you know, going to an independent school or even just entering in a public high school, what are the important things, you know, you think they should know as far as preparing for college? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things, and this goes back to some of the restructuring work we did in 2020, we basically took a step back and said, let's essentially ask this question what are the critical milestones on the journey from applicant to scholar to alum? And then while we're addressing that question, let's also create platforms for engaging and eliciting feedback from families we serve. And that took the form of like quarterly town halls, which we continue to deliver with families as a means of sharing information, hearing how things are going. We deploy regular surveys to help calibrate and inform our programmatic offerings. And again, this is particularly important for us because we're working with students you know, again, that we're searching from over 20 markets around the country and going deep in about those five that I shared earlier. So serving upwards of nearly 2000 scholars uh, and working and managing relations with over 200 schools while we have a staff size of about 35 people. Mm. So for us, it's vitally important to be strategic and focused on what programmatic offerings we stand up. And we wanna do so with an eye towards doing it sustainably and with quality in mind. So one of the findings from, you know, the fact finding and assessment process we did in 2020 was families were asking for specific kinds of support around college and career exploration. And so we led, that led us to stand up a new scholar and alumni success team. And responding to family feedback, the team stood up a series of about eight to 10 sessions on content and material that family wanted, that families wanted greater information on. So they wanted specifically support on essay writing. They wanted help on navigating the financial aid process and issues of college affordability. Uh, they wanted help on how to best advocate for themselves uh, and to basically develop more meaningful partnerships with college guidance offices as mm. they're navigating the college admissions process. And so by doing that, you know, we're sort of finding ways to be targeted and focused and the support that we're offering. And then over time, we want to refine that. So continuing to get the feedback loops, to get the feedback, to say what's working well, what are we missing, where are the gaps, so that we can be even more responsive to ever-evolving family needs. 
And it's funny you said that, you know, about essay writing and we're all sitting on pins and needles thinking about how chat GBTX is going to affect essay writing for every kid, regardless of color. Um, but families are, I, and I'll speak for myself, um, have a big issue when students of color, particularly black students, are encouraged or allowed to, when I say allowed to, when I go to independent schools particularly, and a counselor rubber stamps an essay that I think is either stereotypical or about trauma, right? You know, oh, woe is me. I'm the black kid and the, and the only black kid in my class and this is how I'm navigating it. That story has been told. It's just replacing the name. And I'm not saying those stories aren't important, but I think it it, it diminishes other elements, other traits that, that, that a student has. And I think the essay writing time, particularly during this test optional season, is, is critical. And I'm glad that your families recognize that the essays, essays plural, are important and that they don't want to just be something that is, um, I guess, brushed over by anybody, whether it's the support that they get at ABC, whether the support that they get from their school, that it's something that has to be taken seriously just the way there were months leading up to standardized test prep that needs to be months dedicated to the essay writing process because of how critical it is. I do want to ask you, as the Supreme Court, again, we all none of us have an answer. I'm aware. But as the Supreme Court discusses race um, in admissions and, and race-based decisions or race-based uh, applications in, 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 in uh, college admissions, how do you think, what are your concerns? What are your hopes, solutions? Like, how do you think that's going to impact your families in, in, in negative ways? That's the only one I can think of. Yeah, you know, I think there's understandably a great deal of trepidation. And as you noted, I don't think there are any singular solutions. I do think that it's vitally important and just given the the legacy, the time and the breath, the number of students that we serve, you know, I think about getting back to the essay and sort of connecting the dots here. The breadth of our experience is so much, so vast, so diverse. Um, and I think being able to take command and to tell our story and to tell so and so that the agency and the power in that rests in that individual student to have the power to tell their story and on their mm -hmm. terms. It's just something that I think has been really meaningful and just important to me in terms of all of my work. So working at youth serving organizations, you know, thinking about preparing students, whether it was an application, an essay, or, uh, you know, talking to a funder and sharing their experience. It's like, tell your story. The power of your mm -hmm. story in your own terms and in your own words is so vitally important. And I think that's something that guides us as we think about the work we do at a better chance, as we think about that college navigation process. You know, I think we'll know obviously more uh, come June. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things I always have to acknowledge too is a, a certain amount of privilege that we have given the schools and the networks that we've established. So if I think about, you know, a better chance students and think about the schools that they're attending, um, you know, I think in some respects, there are ways that within our ecosystem, those students will have the opportunity to compete and gain entree and access in ways that their counterparts who are not at those schools will not. And so I'm thinking about it kind of within the sector and the field. Um, it's not to say it won't present some challenges for our students specifically, but I think disproportionately, um, they're going to have some advantages that other talented, qualified, great students will not have um, as a result of not having the commensurate supports or necessarily those supports within their specific schools. And that's the area that gives me a lot of concern. And so, you know, as I think about what we can do is I think as an organization, we have 18,000 stories of the transformative effect of education. 
And so, you know, I kind of see it as we look ahead to the future. Part of our work is, I think, how do we leverage those stories and tell those stories as a means of wielding influence? And I think kind of really winning converts in terms of providing mm. the supports that students like the communities we serve need. Uh, because again, we have evidence and a track record and proof points that show with investment, with support, with time and energy, these folks can accomplish some remarkable things. You know, if I think about our alumni base, you know, Governor Deval Patrick, alum mm. of A Better Chance, singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman, alumna mm. of A Better Chance, the president-elect of Harvard University, Dr. Claudine Gay, alumna of that. A Better Chance. So, you know, I think we have uh, the evidence of proof points, the track record of impact. You know, if we think about even when our students go through, 85% of our students are graduating on time. Nearly 100% of them are going directly into college. When we did our last alumni survey, nearly half have graduate degrees. So we know that we, when we make the time investment in young people, they can succeed. And I think we have an opportunity to tell that story and I think to win over hearts and minds. And just just very quickly, you know, just I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, people hear about, you know, organization like a better chance, their underlying assumption on who they are serving. Could you just share some demographics of the populations that you are uh, serving uh, through your organization? Yeah, for sure. So in terms of the organization, again, it's young students of color, um, about 60 percent are black. Uh, about 14 to 15 percent uh, identify as uh, Latinx. Uh, we have about 8 percent Asian, and then the remainder um, have multiple points of identity uh, and identify as multiracial, multiethnic. Um, over 60 percent are women. Uh, so we certainly see that there are more women in the program uh, overall. And I think many of these statistics and numbers have held up over time. Uh, so I think certainly it's an area as we think about the changing demographics of the country, as we think about challenges and opportunities, we want to think about how do we position ourselves to serve more young people and young people who are most in need of the opportunity. So it's certainly an ongoing live conversation. I certainly have with my team and with the board. Um, and, you know, certainly many of these students are deeply engaged in our community. You know, they serve in many different ways. Um, they uh, are definitely academically talented, uh, but there's also a range. You know, I would say, you know, there are students who are kind of at the, the top end of their class, but there are also a number of students who are kind of like the solid B, B plus student. Um, and so, you know, I think there are many opportunities and I, I would say there's not one singular profile. Um, and at the same time, we recognize it's a, it's a hard process, you know, 14 yeah. months, uh, it's a long time. Uh, and so there's a lot of work that we do with parents because it requires a great deal of effort on their part, a great deal of persistence. Um, and, you know, we're taking steps to think about how do we refine things? You know, we took a look, for instance, like small things, let's try to lower barriers to accessing this opportunity. You know, we took a hard look at our application and said, we're asking way too many questions. It's taking too long. There are probably people who are stopping and saying, it's just daunting from the point of application. And so we started to winnow that down and, you know, went from what, a 16-page app to a five-page app. Uh, and thinking about how do we sort of think carefully and critically about limiting the barriers and removing the obstacles and pursuing opportunities like this. But we also know we plug into a very complex ecosystem and, 
you know, there's a great deal of complexity. There are a number of systems and platforms parents and families have to navigate. Financial aid is can be an arduous process. So, you know, I think there's work to be done there. But it, it's to us, it's just vitally important that we think critically about how do we limit and remove obstacles and barriers to pursuing opportunities like ours. So, so I just, I just a real quick follow up question, and this, this is going to be a tough one. Uh, you know, we've uh, gone throughout the country. We talked to a lot of, you know, you know, parents about this process. You know, what are they thinking about? You know, what things would you suggest to parents that they could better support their students in this process? Yeah, I think I think we need to redefine success. Oh my goodness, you said it without that's Tim's yeah. little slogan. That's his mantra. Please tell me that was scripted. Please tell me you guys are like a, a, a telepathic synergy going on. No, we're just on the same page, man. Oh. Like we gotta redefine success. So you prompted I mean, him. You texted him. Who's that? I don't want to Hey, man, hey, man, hey, man, great mindset alike. There you go. There you go. You know, look, I, I think this has changed over time. And I, I remember when I was going through this process myself decades ago, you know, we would always, the organization always touted admissions to the Ivies, the most selective schools, like that was the barometer for success. And, right. you know, when I think about defining success now, when I'm talking to families and thinking about how do we frame and how do we think anew about the college process, I'm more focused on, is this school the right fit? for the student in terms of its academic offerings as it relates to what they're interested in exploring and their career possibilities. You know, is this the environment where a student sees themselves and can see this as an inclusive and supportive community that's going to advance their growth and development? Um, you know, will the student not bear the brunt of a significant debt burden post-graduation? We know that disproportionately students of color borrow at higher rates to finance their education and graduate from school with a greater debt burden than their white counterparts. And many while in school have to juggle multiple life priorities. So there was this really interesting uh, Gallup Luminous study uh, earlier this month or last month rather that found that nearly 40% of black undergraduate students are caregivers or have full-time jobs while pursuing their bachelor's degrees. And I also think we just, frankly, we have more data. So it's also important to look at the return on investment. You know, what are the earnings of graduates from schools after graduation during the first 10 years out of school? How many graduates are gaining acceptance into graduate degree programs? I think all of those things are important factors that families should be thinking about as they're navigating the space and looking to make decisions. I think I mean, we done here. I think we done here. Okay, I have one more. I have the a man, combo the man, question. The man dropped the mic. He said we needed to redefine success. I mean, and, what and, we and doing? also threw out a few other things that we say: cost being a, a key element of, of the, the college choice and match and fit. So yes, great minds think alike. So I'm going to include myself in that great minds uh, cohort. Um, Francisco, we can't thank you enough for for uh, for being a part of this. We're going to get you out here on a combo question. All right, so okay. be prepared. Here we go. Gotcha. I tell Tim all the time that our alma mater, okay, is the HBCU of New England. I say that only two other schools, Brown and Penn, can possibly have the same amount of not just students of color, but the different fraternities and sororities. I know you're in a fraternity. Like the different, the, the, the collection, we are not a monolith on this PWI campus. Whether you agree with me or not, um, I do want to hear about the, the, the students who are in ABC and the importance of going to a place that's diverse, or do you see more kids going to HBCUs and why? And last piece of the puzzle, are there schools that you hope more of your ABC students consider that you're abreast of? 
Yeah, you know, and again, shout out to Wesleyan. Uh, it's HBCU of the Northeast, right? Come on, Chris. Don't have them co-sign to that. I'm not sure I would go that far. <laughs> However, I, I agree with the spirit of, of the comment for sure. Go. The spirit wholeheartedly. And, you know, I think overall, when I think about, you know, the top 10 schools with the highest matriculation of a better chance scholars, you know, probably not a surprising list to this group, but Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Wesleyan. Harvard, Howard, NYU, Tufts, UPenn, mm -hmm. Yale, and definitely Wesleyan. Uh, so Wesleyan definitely figures prominently. Uh, you know, I think what I encourage is, you know, our families to say, definitely take a look at those lists of the schools where, you know, we have a long track record in history and where a lot of a better chance scholars have really found the opportunity to excel. Uh, and at the same time, don't limit yourself to those schools because there are a number of schools out here that might be a better match, a better fit, and really meet some of that the criteria that I shared in terms of really thinking about how do we redefine success. Um, and, you know, I certainly, this is not a shameless plug. I would encourage families and have encouraged our families to pick up resources like your book. You know, I think in addition to the strategies and considerations, I really love the appendix uh, that has the, a list of schools worth checking out, some of which may not be as well known. And I think it's a great starting point in the process because it helps, I think just again, reset sites in terms of what's possible. It sparks curiosity. And then I think it leads families to sort of say, hey, this is worth checking out. And I think again, you know, the admonition to go visit, to check out schools, to sort of get a sense of the the feel and the culture, in addition to, again, a lot of those more data-driven questions is vitally important and it's about striking the right balance. Tim, since, since, since he did quasi-cosign, no, he didn't go that far. <laughs> no, he, did, he didn't. I mean, I, I mean, 24 hours, you struck out twice with that. You know, I, th I, think, you, I think you just need to stop. I mean, it's, it's a great institution. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wesleyan is a great institution. Um, no, but, you know, you know, thank you so much for your time. You know, we understand uh, you are busy. Um, and the last question that I have uh, is, you know, in the fact that you did not go to Wesleyan, is there another school that maybe you would have considered or school that you really want, you know, students and families out there to, you know, think about as they go about this process? Yeah, you know, I think, if I go back to, you know, sort of high school junior me and thinking about schools, uh, you know, Wesleyan was probably head and shoulders. It, it was hard to kind of unlock me from that position. <clears throat> I, I think my parents were really moving for, uh, you know, Columbia. They wanted to keep me home. Uh, but I, I definitely was looking for a smaller environment and sort of a, a place to find community. And got to tell you that pre-frost weekend. It, change, your life. change your life. Change your life. But I, I think it's, you know, and in, in lieu of like a specific school, I will say that for me, one of the telling points is the community of support that I found at my institution that lives with me well after. You know, the fact that Shereem and I weren't, you know, we missed each other by a few years, but have been able to maintain contact and connection and been a resource for one another to think about, you know, my best friends, both uh, professionally and personally emanate from that experience, um, I think, you know, speaks volumes. And I think if you can find that at your school, then, you know, it, it's remarkable how much that is just an amplifier and a multiplier effect in your life. 
Francisco, I believe I speak on behalf of Tim. We cannot thank you enough. ABC, the organization, is lucky to have you. Um, again, you are a good man. Don't let anybody tell you different. We appreciate your time, your energy, your 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 wisdom on this topic because it's, it's obviously it's obvious that your heart is in it. Um, like you said, you you take this as a calling. Tim uses the word passion. I use the word pur purpose. And you're now we're, one of us is going to adopt the word calling or assignment. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Best of, I don't want to say luck, but continue the great work that you're doing. And I know we'll be in touch. Um, so we appreciate your time and have a great day, man. Thank you, you too. Thank you so much and appreciate all that you do.